Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Mette. How's it going, Aaron? It's going well. It's going well. How are you? I'm good. We've got some exciting announcements for you guys. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. All right. So we got something for you called Thursday Throwdown. In case you don't know about this, we started a new feature. And these are exclusively available at usefulidiots.substack.com. So Thursday Throwdown are our mini episodes premiering each Thursday. And you can get your exclusive dose of midweek media madness at our Thursday Throwdowns, which we release on Thursdays. And that's when we react to uh, cable news clips or media clips that we don't get to on uh, Monday mornings. Because on Monday mornings, of course, we only react to Sunday morning news shows. So this gives us the freedom to delve into media clips that fall outside of Sunday morning. And boy, do we have a bunch of good ones for you. Then... We also have a new feature called the Absurd Arena, which is the Useful Idiots discussion board for people who think they can talk back to a podcast. So you get to share your opinions and get your questions and comments read on the show. Uh, and again, this is something you can find, uh, you, you have access to, this is something you have access to if you subscribe to usefulidiots.substack.com. So if you subscribe there, then you get to write us questions. So let's go. We have some questions from this week. What, what should we go with first, Aaron? What do you want to answer? Well, let's hear from uh, our first question, which comes from Wendy LaRiviere. Wendy asks, I feel such apathy in the face of worldwide misery combined with official failure to come to grips with it. I've been a despairing Democrat for decades, but what now? I mean, I think you continue to despair. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Look, it's hard to give uh, words of optimism in such bleak times. Uh, look at Democrats just this week. We're going to talk about it more, but putting out a letter just calling for diplomacy over Ukraine and within 24 hours retracting it because yeah. they got some feedback from war hawks uh, in, in Washington. So there's very few things you can look to these days to feel hope. But as long as we're here, there's always hope and people come together around issues that they care about. And that's where differences are made. So that's what I would look to personally, look to people and movements, not to Democrats or Republicans. Yeah. Community. Exactly. And we're part of that community. Absolutely. All right. Well, we got a question from Easy Tages one, two, three. What if the WEF, as in World Economic Forum, is working on a plan with Putin to precisely place the right number of bombs so their nuclear winter effect will balance out all our anthropogenic warming. So, okay, so really, nuclear war could solve global warming. That's the uh, suggestion here from this question, yeah. which I, I, I assume is uh, sarcastic. Look, uh, it if, could be it, the silver lining. It could be the silver lining, yeah. If we do come to nuclear war, which some people in Washington and elsewhere seem to want, then yeah, maybe... Even if it wipes all of us out, maybe it will solve global warming for whoever comes along next, if, if right. there's anybody next. Right. For the fellow, for the following creatures, for the creatures who replace us. Yeah. That makes me feel a lot better. Uh, okay. Gene says, my view is that those criticizing Biden for not doing enough to relieve crippling student debt, mitigate inflation, and bring down the rising cost of living are being unfair. He and his administration are doing their utmost to ensure we will soon live in a world in which these concerns will be completely irrelevant. After the global collapse of human civilizations and near extinction of most life forms on Earth, any survivors will not have to worry about having to pay back loans with interest. And in the substance and barter economy, no one will need to concern themselves with the price of stuff in dollars or any currency. So give the guy some credit, will you? 
I like that. That's a good combination. If Gene and Easy Tejas, I'm picking up what you're putting down. It sounds like you guys are on the same wavelength. Gene, you fooled me there. For a second, I was listening to that question. I was thinking, oh, my God, look, we have a liberal audience member who, yeah. you know, is firmly behind Biden. That's kind of like a, a, a rare breed for a useful idiot's audience. But yeah. no, <laughs> it was classic useful idiot sarcasm. So classic cynicism. Well done. You, yeah. you even fooled me. So well done. Yeah. Fool well me done. once. Yeah. Shame on me. But yeah. <laughs> Well, those are just some of the questions that we got from the absurd arena. So guys, again, if you want to ask us questions, you can do that after joining our Substack at usefulidiots.substack.com. Should we get to the four basic food groups? Let's do it. What Let's do we have do for Democrats suck? Oh my gosh. So for Democrats suck, well, uh, this is such a tragic and unsurprising story. So reading at Democracy Now!, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has withdrawn a letter to the White House just one day after sending it, which urged the Biden administration to pursue direct negotiations with Russia for a ceasefire in Ukraine. The, the letter, signed by 30 liberal lawmakers, sparked a swift backlash among a number of Democrats for undermining support for Ukraine and for fracturing the Democratic response to the war ahead of November's midterms, as some Republicans are calling into question how much the U.S. should be sending to Ukraine. Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal said in a statement Tuesday, the letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by staff without vetting. The letter has been conflated with GOP opposition's support for the Ukrainians' just defense of their national sovereignty. As such, it is a distraction at this time. Okay, this is pretty pathetic. Now, I should say at first I was excited because I thought maybe House Democrats had gotten the uh, Useful Idiots show bump because Medea Benjamin was on last week and she was talking about Pramila Jayapal's effort to get this letter signed by people. And then lo and behold, what happens? Obviously, Pramila Jayapal is a fan of Useful Idiots. She saw we were talking about it. She felt like there was some fire under her bum <laughs> and she needed to deliver. So she released this letter. But now we know that instead of that, actually, apparently it was must have been her staffer who's a fan of Useful Idiots because staffers released this letter accidentally. That's obviously total bullshit and a total cop-out. Basically, Democrats released this very tepid letter, and because they got so much pushback from so many people, they rescinded the letter and blamed their staffers. Um, I have seen progressives be pathetic many times, but this is the most pathetic I've ever seen a progressive be. This is unbelievable. The original letter was so tepid. All they were saying is, Hey, President Biden, while we're voting in lockstep with Lindsey Graham and Liz Cheney to give you billions of dollars to ship off to Ukrainian warlords and to the military industrial complex to fuel a disastrous proxy war that the U.S. provoked and could have prevented and then prolonged when it killed peace negotiations. All we're asking is that you as you do all that and as we continue to support you in doing all that, can you just at least talk to Russia? That's basically what it was saying. Can you talk to Russia? It wasn't threatening to withhold right. any more funding for the war. It wasn't uh, threatening any legislative action. All it was doing was asking Biden politely to at least talk to Russia, right. the other nuclear armed power. And that simple ask was too much for Washington, official Washington, to bear. And just a day of like tweets you know, attacking progressives and people on cable news freaking out. That was enough within 24 hours for Pramila Jayapal to cave, retract the letter and blame her own staffers to throw them under the bus to pretend as if they had released it uh, behind her back. That was her suggestion, basically, that it wasn't Better. vetted properly, which there's no way that this letter went out without her approval. That's just a complete, as right. you say, a cover story. And um, 
amazingly, that was after they issued a, an earlier statement clarifying their position, which is they're like, just to make sure that everyone knows we support right. Biden's policy and we're going to continue voting for this. The, even that wasn't was not low enough. Was low enough. They had to go even lower and retract right. the whole thing. Yeah, I'm just waiting for them to offer to I don't know what could come next. Like they retracted the whole thing. They blamed on their staffers. <laughs> what could they do? Like send Zelensky a fruit basket like <laughs> subscription for a year or something? They could get tattoos of the Azov Battalion. How about That's that? That's what they should do. Yeah, they should yeah. get the, the get some the, Nazi insignia. Yeah, Nazi insignia tat, yeah. Tat, on yeah. their face. I want to see Pramila Jayapal. She gets a face <laughs> tattoo or she's throwing Ukrainians under the bus, basically. So that's the next step. But it's so pathetic. And this whole thing of like this guilt by association, you know, there, there are things that happen with bipartisan support. Like Bernie Sanders worked with the Republicans on uh, legislation around Yemen, and that was good. Just because it, Republicans are paying lip service, they're not even doing anything. Just because they're saying that people in a recession may not want to give a blank check to Ukraine, now all diplomacy is tainted. If yeah, you're and, urging diplomacy, you're a, a MAGA Republican. Yeah. And Pramila Jayapal explicitly referenced that right. in her retraction statements, saying, saying that our letter gave the appearance that we were you know, siding with Rep Republicans who avoid skepticism of funding the Ukraine proxy war. And we can't have that. Right. But look, they were fine to team up with Republicans, the vast majority of them in both chambers to vote to vote for the proxy war, right. to fund it. So they're worried about teaming up with some Republicans who don't want to fund it. Right. It's just it's, it's so yeah, again, pathetic doesn't begin to describe it. I've never right. seen anything like it. Um, even yeah, even she, the letter, even the initial letter itself, I thought was rather pathetic, to be honest with you. Right, but it was something. But at least it was something. It's better than yeah. nothing. Because they're at least acknowledging tacitly, in calling for diplomacy, uh, you're at least tacitly acknowledging that Biden is engaged in zero diplomacy. Right, it's So true. to at least remind him that he's not doing any diplomacy is, to me, better than nothing. Right. But even better than nothing, couldn't be tolerated in yeah. Washington and had to go. Yeah, it was too... It wasn't sufficiently belligerent. Like they weren't putting enough blood on their hands. Yeah. They yeah, need and, more blood on their hands. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, just so so people, uh, this is what Jayapal said. Because of the timing, our message is being conflated by some as being equivalent to the recent statement by Republican leader McCarthy threatening an end to aid Ukraine if Republicans take over, which he's not threatening to end. The proximity of these statements created the unfortunate appearance that Democrats who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of military, strategic and economic assistance to the Ukrainian people are somehow aligned with Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. Yeah, again, this is not support for the Ukrainian people. This is support for uh, weapons manufacturers and people who want to pursue the strategy of fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. Um, we have played the clip before of Lindsey Graham, who's far more honest than Pramila Jayapal when he said right. that as long as we give Ukraine the military and economic support, they will fight to the last person. That's the actual policy. And that is who Pramila Jayapal and the progressives have no problem. Yeah, up they're with. in lockstep with them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And Marcos Melissa from Daily Coast tweeted, uh, these 30 House progressives are now making common cause with Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, J.D. Vance and the rest of the MAGA crowd. You think that will give them some pause? Well, as you point out, why shouldn't they have some pause being finding common ground with uh, Lindsey Graham? I mean, it's just an absurd thing that there are bad people who have a somewhat similar position. Like, is diplomacy now bad? Yes, is it is. Is diplomacy According now bad because there are yes. some Republicans who are paying lip service to it? 
according to the official Democratic line and the official re Republican line, with the exception of a few, a, a, a diplomacy is, is appeasement. And uh, for catering to that, progressives on, ca on Capitol Hill suck. They yeah. absolutely suck. Democrats suck. The Democrats suck, yeah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. All right. So for Republican suck, let's go to that crazy Pennsylvania Senate race where you have uh, John Fetterman, who's recovering from a stroke up against Dr. Mehmet Oz, who is a, you know, multimillionaire supported by Trump, very right wing on all kinds of issues. And it's a very strange contest, given these uh, these two individuals and their unique circumstances. So. Uh, Dr. Oz was asked during the debate about his stance on minimum wage, uh, which in Pennsylvania is a lot lower than neighboring states. It's about seven dollars. It's just above seven dollars. And so this is Dr. Oz's answer. OK, Mr. Fetterman, thank you, Mr. Oz. Turning to you. Do you support raising the federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour? Why or why not? You have 60 seconds. I think market forces have already driven up the minimum wage. I was with a hotel worker actually here in Harrisburg a few months ago, and he was telling me how hard it was to live on the $15 an hour that he was getting paid. John Fetterman shoots too low. We want much more money than that. And there are many ways to achieve that. But John Fetterman thinks the minimum wage is his weekly allowance from his parents. He's not really cognizant of the real challenges of business owners who've got to balance that with employees. Thankfully, we have a solution. And John, you didn't answer the question. You can't put businesses out of uh, commission in order to pay more wages because they won't be the wages will go to zero, which is John Fetterman's radical plan. At the, at, if you really follow to conclusion, here's what I would do. We have one of the richest energy states in the country. I believe if we could unleash the energy beneath our feet here in Pennsylvania, there'd be plenty of money to go around. We have increased wages, a more reason for students to take uh, vocational classes to be able to learn trades, which I'm strongly supportive of. We'd also be able to pipe that gas, improve our economy, and reduce inflation. That's a plan that works. And it's humble enough that I can say broadly. Thank you. I want to I give you, uh, Mr. Fetterman, a 15-second follow-up to what he just said about yeah. you. Now, again, it's, it's remarkable. He hasn't really had any answer that he actually had about that. In his, he doesn't want to talk about having somebody having a living wage and having somebody able to survive again. And I want to come back to you now, Mr. Oz, for a quick follow-up. What do you say to those Pennsylvanians that he just spoke of that are trying to survive on seven twenty-five an hour, which is less than all of our neighbors? You have thirty seconds. Oh, I don't think you should have to survive on seven twenty-five an hour. I want the minimum wage up as high as it can go. I want to highlight that I have an agenda for prosperity, unlike John Fetterman. I want us all getting paid a lot more than $15. And I answered your question directly in a way that would preserve business owners, job creators, so they thrive, and we'd have lots more employees entering the workforce and then prospering, getting paid $25, $35, $45 an hour. But we're never gonna get there if we don't unleash our energy. And John Fetterman's stubbornness on calling it a stain on Pennsylvania is an insult to those workers. To be clear, you said you want people making a lot more, but that's not through a federal law of minimum wage. That's through market forces. Market forces should drive okay. it up anyway. And it's already yeah. done that. Thank you. You know, you should be able to All get right. paid much more than $15 an hour. Thank you. Okay. So you hear that? He says, 
I want everyone to get paid a lot of money. But then he says, I'm not going to support a regulation that mandates the minimum that they can be paid. And right now, as the moderator points out, the minimum wage in Pennsylvania is $7.25. And as Dr. Oz is saying, oh, that's too low and $15 is too low. He's still not going to support making it at the minimum of $15. And he says that market price, market forces are going to drive it up. And by doing that, the best way, he says, is by unleashing Pennsylvania's energy potential, which is which means fracking. So more fracking right. will somehow raise everyone's uh, wages, not simply changing a law to make it right. guaranteed that everyone gets at least $15 an hour. You could advocate using the law, as you're saying, to raise the minimum wage, or you could let people decide on their own, let the market work it out, and frack. That's his policy for minimum wage. Pretty much. Fracking. Yeah. Fracking. Yeah. 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 I mean, why bother uh, changing it through policy and legislation when you could just let people frack? Just drill. Just Just drill, drill, baby, drill. It's like trickle up. It's it's, it's energy below our feet. It's going to trickle up. And, you know, you just you just get the ground shaking, get the oil moving. and All of a sudden, people working in fast food restaurants, their wages are going to start magically rising. Yeah. It It will get right to their paychecks. Yeah. Well, it's like Jesus rising. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, so that's Republican suck. That is indeed Republican suck. All right. So for isn't that weird? We have a kind of cute weird, if I do say so myself. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Wilson, let's take us to the uh, Wall Street Journal. So the Wall Street Journal actually kind of adorably uh, holds a comedy wildlife photo competition. And uh, they, they write, yes, the comedy wildlife photo finalists are as hilarious as you would expect. Photographers from around the world submitted thousands of wildlife images for this year's award competition. So let's take a look at some of these images. The proboscis monkey gawked in amazement as the photographer cruised by on the Kinabatangan River in Borneo. That's kind of cute. That's kind of funny. What do you think, Aaron? Looks very inviting. Yeah. It, he looks shocked to me. Yeah. He's like, what is she wearing? that's what that gives me that vibe okay the next one we got all right this is a good one the comedy wildlife photography awards shortlisted 40 images for this year's uh competition including these sassy penguins on the falkland (laughs) islands these are good that sassy penguin is basically saying talk to the hand talk to the hand definitely (laughs) talk to the flipper because the face don't understand all right next we got um the gray triggerfish near the Azores got up close and personal with the photographer. That is a funny-looking fish. Buck teeth. Yeah, but cute, too. But cute, yeah. Yeah. It is cute. All right, then we got this smiling monkey photo- photographed in the city of Abba in Saudi Arabia, where monkeys gather and steal food from people. That's funny. Mm-hmm. And that's a cute... That monkey actually almost looks like he's related to the triggerfish. They've got those buck teeth, those adorable mm. buck teeth. Oh, this is a good one. These wallabies played on the beach in Queensland, Australia. Look at that. That guy, that wallaby is basically, it looks like he's grabbing onto another wallaby and swinging him around. <laughs> I hope it's cute and playful as opposed to violent. Oh, no. I'm sure that's a great time. All right, a blast. Great time. All right. Then we got uh, these playful meerkats photographed at a game reserve in South Africa. That is cute. They look like they're laughing. They look like a romantic couple. Looks like the woman's behind her boyfriend or husband. She has yeah. her, her paws around his neck in a non-strangling or actually could be strangling. Who nah. knows what these um, knows what um, these meerkats are up. up to. Yeah. yeah. But I, I see more a guy. He's laughing. His girlfriend just made a funny joke. 
that that could really be one of those engagement photos right there. Maybe they're even posing for an engagement. It probably is an engagement. Yeah, in fact, yeah. right. If we went on on their Facebook page, they'd probably have. Now, usually I don't like that. I find that obnoxious and performative and a little self-obsessed when humans do it. But when a meerkat does it, it's a little they different. They get a pass. They get, they get a, pass a pass for sure. They have meerkat license. Yeah. Okay. Now we got these lappet-faced vultures showing off their wings in South Africa. This gives me a little bit of an inappropriate vibe. Like their wings are spread, but it kind of looks like an, a trench coat. They kind of look like flashers. They're flashers, yeah. Yeah, they're flashers. They're exhibitionists. <laughs> they should be ashamed. We shouldn't okay. reward that behavior, no. We shouldn't reward that behavior, yeah. yeah. They should not be allowed to be a finalist. This duckling waddled across a turtle-covered log among the wetlands in Kirkland, Washington. That's pretty cute. So the duckling's walking on top of turtles. Yeah, and the turtles cool. are on top of a log. Wow. So that's wow. like that's like a athletic competition right there. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. called the duck-waddle-turtle-log-lie. <laughs> And guys, you can still vote for uh, your favorite image at www.comedywildlifephoto.com until November 27th. So we'll be following up on that. Do you have a vote? Well, that is, that is a tough competition. Now, I have to go with what the rules of the competition are, which is it's, this is comedy, right? We're not right. going for cuteness. I mean, right. for cuteness, I'd, I'd probably have a different pick. But for comedy, I got to go with Talk to the Fin. Same. Yeah, that was pretty Talk, funny. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I look forward to the results. Yeah, me too. All right. So first, that terrible. We're going to go back to this whole Ukraine debacle with the congressional progressives. And we're going to get a, a taste of the kind of backlash that they faced when they just merely put out the proposal to Biden, the suggestion that he engages in diplomacy with Russia. And when they did that, that elicited a freak out from uh, neocons like Joe Scarborough of MSNBC. And this is what he said in response to the uh, Democratic letter calling for negotiations with Russia before it was retracted. Oh, this is good. Then they walk into uh, Kevin McCarthy's office and say, hey, we want to help you out here. We know that you stuck your foot in your mouth about Ukraine, so we're going to help you out here. I Just think about this. Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Vladimir Putin commits war crimes against the Ukrainian people. Vladimir Putin selectively targets apartment buildings to kill children. Vladimir Putin bombs playgrounds. Vladimir Putin Sounds orders like his Seuss. troops when they leave towns to deliberately target and kill all Ukrainian civilians. And you have 30 progressives saying America must talk to Russia. I, some, something's left out of that equation. And that would be the Ukrainian people who are victims of war crimes every day, Mike. What planet do these people live on to think that you can make peace with Vladimir Putin without first running it by Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainian people, and their leader, Zelensky, who is literally fighting for his life, and the Ukrainians are literally fighting for their lives. So that's Joe Scarborough. I think that's a record for how many times someone on cable news has said Vladimir Putin. That yeah, over so short a period of time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really the ratio in there. Yeah. into other words. Yeah, it had a doctor. It was like, I felt like I was listening to a rap <laughs> or listening to a Dr. Seuss story, or maybe both. Yeah. 
Vladimir Putin happens to be the leader of the country that we're currently engaged in a proxy war with. So to end that proxy war, you have to talk to Vladimir Putin. There's right. just no way around that. And this idea that we have to leave it up to the Ukrainians, first of all, as a matter of principle, it's completely fallacious because it's not as if Ukraine is the only belligerent in this war. Ukraine could not be fighting if not for the U.S. deciding to provide billions of dollars worth of weapons and also intelligence support and even selecting targets. And as some congressional Democrats recognized back when they were trying to block uh, U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen, the fact that the U.S. is involved with weapons and intelligence support makes the U.S. a co-belligerent. And that's why on that basis, Democrats were trying to get the U.S. to stop being a, a participant. So just because Zelensky says he wants to keep fighting, uh, it doesn't mean the U.S. is obligated to keep being a belligerent in the war. And the fact is, U.S. has incredible leverage over Ukraine, so much so that, and this is something that Morning Joe will never, ever air, but it's just documented now, that back when Zelensky and Russia did negotiate back earlier this year, the U.S. and U.K. intervened to stop it. So this right. idea that we believe in Ukrainian agency is just, it's it, it's false. And, you know, Joe Biden, if you remember back when he was vice president, he bragged about getting a prosecutor fired by withholding, right. uh, by threatening to withhold a billion dollars in loans. So the U.S. has leverage. It's used it before. There's no reason that it can't uh, use it now. The only reason it doesn't want to is because people like Joe Scarborough, their attitude that we have to keep fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian and we can't negotiate with Vladimir Putin, that that's the dominant right. uh, uh, mentality right now in Washington. They draw the line at using leverage to save lives. That's just that's that's a bridge too far. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So that's terrible. Also, it's just like, OK, they're going to go through all these things that they think makes Putin really bad. Isn't that a reason that you want to stop this war? Like if Putin is doing terrible things, that's why you want to stop the war. That's a great point, but it doesn't make it. It's not. It's not coherent. It's not consistent. Like right. they they accuse him of doing all these. They accuse him of personally doing all these horrible things. Right. If he's selecting targets and uh, telling people to to fire on civilians, uh, so if you really believe that he's doing that, you would have every all the more incentive to want right. to stop it, and you stop it yeah. by negotiating. I think it just speaks to like the United States and its cheerleaders are so used to just getting their way and being a bully that they don't understand what it means to have to negotiate. And that's why they're terrible. All right, so we have a great guest coming on. Yes, to talk about what's going on in Haiti, we are going to be joined by Jamima Pierre. She is an associate professor at UCLA and the Haiti America's coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you. Um, can you just lay out for people who aren't following the news what is happening right now in Haiti? Well, right, what, um, what's happening right now in Haiti in terms of people on the ground are just continuing protests against the, the, the call for a foreign um, military intervention into the country um, and also the call against the um, installed prime minister. Um, and the removal of uh, the the imposition, the reimposition of the oil subsidies that um, he removed, that actually led to a lot of these protests to begin with. So that's what's happening. At the same time, you have the U.S. scrambling to find people um, to basically um, populate this military force that they want to send. And um, I think it's important to 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 notice. We can talk about this later, but I also think. 
it seems like the resolution trying to get these foreign forces to Haiti seems to be stuck because the Europeans don't want to provide troops, the Canadians don't want to provide troops, the U.S. doesn't want to provide troops, especially so close to the, the midterm elections. Um, and so I think they're waiting for um, maybe the Caribbean community to find troops, but then people are saying, well, what's the mandate? And so, so I do think it's important. It's a great thing that um, China and Russia actually push back against this um, rapid deployment force, which, is, um, which gives us some breathing room at this moment. It seems like there are people who want intervention. We see like the Washington Post opinion page says, yes, intervene in Haiti and push for democracy. That's from the editorial board. Um, the New York Times reports Haiti appeals for armed intervention and aid to quell chaos. I don't know who they're talking about when they when they t they seem to uh, think that they can speak for Haiti and Haitians. Right. So who? Yeah. Who's the Haiti that wants intervention? I, I'd like to point out that um, the call for intervention came actually from the OAS, the the Luis Almagro, the right wing um, organization, uh, Secretary General of the Organization of American States, who's actually going through his own internal um, issues with corruption um, um, at this point. But on October six, he tweeted. Um, after meeting with um, Ariel Henry, the de facto prime minister, um, he tweeted that the Haitian government should request um, international help. The next day, you get a letter from this de facto um, president, um, prime minister, he's not president, he's prime minister, um, asking for an international intervention. And then soon after, you have uh, the UN office, um, BNU, um, Helen Lalim, who's in charge of the UN office in Haiti, um, pushing for this call. And, and basically, and, and then you have the UN Secretary General immediately asking for this force. And so it seems to me like there was this massive propaganda machine that began um, in late September to actually highlight you know, this problem that actually has been going on for more than a year, especially since the assassination, there's been, you know, these so-called gang, these armed men um, have been given more arms over the years. And so this is this is a manufactured emergency at this point. Um, and it just seemed like all the media came together. They all wrote these stories, these headlines, and it just seemed like impending disaster. And, and it, it seemed like a well-coordinated campaign to actually push to get the U.S. to actually, um, to get the U.N. And, and everyone on board, especially the Car Caribbean community, which has been a very dis big disappointment for the rest of us, um, to get on board. And I also think it's part of the U.S. Haiti's, um, Haiti, um, we can talk about this later as well, but Haiti is the first country that they want to try their new Global Fragility Act um, that was signed by um, uh, Trump in December 2019. And so Haiti would be the first, what they call bite of the apple, um, to test this, basically using foreign forces, other forces to do the U.S. bidding um, in this space. And these protests that have been going on recently in Haiti, drawing tens of thousands of people, what are they about? The protests are about the, the removal of the oil subsidies, and they've been going on at this point 10 weeks, um, nonstop, thousands of people in the streets. Um, they're being hidden by the discourse around gangs, right, which which is a very racist discourse because people will believe it. Um, but they've been, you know, the, the IMF, the U.S. government, the, the IMF have been trying to remove oil subsidies from Haiti for a long time. This goes all the way back to even um, when um, Hugo Chavez, um, you know, offered this Petrocarib fund um, to help Haiti basically give sell Haiti oil at a very discounted price where they didn't have to pay for 25 years, 1% interest, and use the money that they used to sell, um, that 
the money that they, the profit that they get from selling the oil that Venezuela provided, they would use for development projects. The U.S. hated that from the very beginning. In fact, one of the reasons they were against the other president um, before Martelly came into power was to actually get them out of the Petro Caribe um, um, uh, uh, organization. And then recently, the IMF um, has been trying to basically. Uh, they tried to, they tried back in 2018, 2019 to, to remove the oil subsidies. And remember, that's the only subsidies the Haitian um, people have. Remember, all these Western states have subsidies over a lot of different different things, but the oil subsidies uh, is what the IMF has been trying. And so the last protests in 2018, 2019 were actually against Henri hinting that he would remove the fuel subsidies. And so he had to back down after the protests. And now this time, Henri pushed it through regardless. And that was 10 weeks ago when the protests began. And people are saying, well, um, he needs to, to get out. And I have to very be very specific. So the oil, the gas, a gallon of gas in Haiti was about, I think, $4, four, three, almost $4 US dollars per gallon. To, to give context, the average minimum wage in Haiti is $2, two US dollars a day, right? And some people make less. Some people make a little more. So once they remove the oil, oil subsidies, it raised the, the, the price of a gallon uh, of oil to almost $6 a gallon. So when people are making $2 a day, one gallon of oil is about $6 a gallon. That's outrageous. And so people can't function. Um, so that's really the key thing. Um, the key thing is this oil subsidies that's removed by an illegitimate government. So the people want the illegitimate government gone and they want the subsidies put back in place. These gangs that we keep hearing about as being a major problem in Haiti, is there any populist element to them? And the reason why I ask that is because I've heard some people talk about this one leader, Jimmy Cherizier, barbecue as being sort of a, portrayed as sort of a Robin Hood figure. Is that, is there any um, truth to that? Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm very um, torn about speaking about barbecue on, for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, I, I don't like the demonization of one human being. Um, this is like the bin Ladenization of, mm. of Haiti, right? You take one person and you make them the big demon. And the reality is no matter what crimes um, Cherizier is, uh, is attributed to Cherizier, it's, it, does, it pales in comparison to the crimes of the US and the UN in Haiti. So the demonization of one person just doesn't work for me, right? And, and, and the, real, the real gangs to me, the US uh, uh, are the core group um, in Haiti running things. Having said that, um, I do. I, I have heard some people say they're, you know, they call themselves the revolutionary uh, G9. Um, there's a lot of misinformation in Haiti, so I, I actually refrain from whether, you know, condemning or accepting him at, at this moment because I'm not sure because I, you know, the way that the U.S. demonizes individuals um, doesn't work for me. But so there are populist elements because he does have support, and and the truth is, if these foreign armed foreign um, military folks would come into the country they would have a fight they would they would they need to be careful what they ask for because there are tons of arms uh, in the country and people are really ready to fight back and so he he has enough support for people to fight back at the same time we've always had armed young men in in the country you know martelli michelle martelli armed a whole bunch of young men um in the uh in in the poor areas right before right when he came into power so much so that you know the National Endowment for Democracy funded Martelli's group that funded these gangs. Um, they tried to deputize these gangs, um, especially um, as Cherizier and the G9. And so that's that's the UN and 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 the UN group that's been that have been doing that. And then the arming of gangs also. You have to remember, 
the five ports are owned privately by the oligarch, the Haitian oligarch, the, the non-black Haitian oligarch that have international passports, right, um, and that live in Miami and in Europe and so on. So all the guns that come through the country come through their ports. And so, and they've, in the past, have used, have armed young people, the political elite, the business elite have young, have armed young people to go after their you know, people who are they, who they're against and so on and so forth. So this is just an exacerbation of the situation that's been ongoing. And the, what makes it, what I think what makes it stand up is that Sherry Zier supposedly is blocking, um, you know, a gas depot. But the gas depots, you know, is you have to ask who owns it. And it's, you know, who is he in cahoots with one of the elites that actually control that gas depot. So he, you know, Sherry Zier doesn't have as much power as people think, right? He's he can't, you know, he doesn't, you know, sanctions won't work. He doesn't have a U.S. passport. He doesn't leave the neighborhood. And so the people that should be sanctioned are the people funding him and, and bringing the guns into the country. And that's the oligarch. Can you tell us about the core group that you mentioned? Yes. So the core group is uh, is is really um, one of the, um, I, I've, I've been wanting to figure out how is it that there's there's this group that has this outsized role um, in, in Haitian politics? And the core group was actually um, established um, back in, um, right when you have the first um, um, occupation, uh, when the occupation began in 2004, after US, France, and Canada removed Aristide from power, flew him to the um, Central African Republic, and then you have US and France making the UN Security Council deploy a Chapter 7 um, you know, military occupation. And so out of that, you had this core group, which is a, a, a group of people who we're not sure what their role is, but they were supposed to basically help run the UN military occupation. So it was first convened in 2004 under the um, authority of the UN Security Council um, resolution that led to this um, um, organization. And it's a self-style council consisting of diplomats of foreign countries, and um, currently has nine members from Brazil, Canada, France, Germany, Spain, the European Union, the Organization of American States, and in um, the U.S. And so it's never had a Haitian representatives, and it was supposed to set up to coordinate the various um, branches and elements of the United Nations in the occupation of Haiti, but it has not been neutral or passive. In fact, it's the core group, for example, that handpicked the prime minister um, after um, after the assassination of Jovenel Moise. It's also the same core group, Helen Lalim, who's in charge of the BNU office, the UN office in Haiti, that actually led this charge for a foreign military occupation that presented Haiti's case. And so there, we, I still don't understand how under what legal scheme that this group can operate so much in in haiti and have so much say in haiti haitian political affairs and the role of international uh, peacekeepers as they're called manusta can you talk about why there's so much distrust uh, of them uh, especially given the fact that they brought cholera to haiti well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a huge um, monument in Haiti that shows um, it's like a, it's a bronze monument that has all these skulls. And on top of it is a minister hat uh, it says minister cholera um, in terms of thinking about what minister means. But first of all, we have to understand that this so-called peacekeeping mission was under chapter seven, which which I think is is important for us to know. You know, chapter seven deployment of the UN means that these the military force can go in there and use force. And it's usually deployed within a country that has like raging civil war and you have a state asked. And so 
you have a coup d'etat where the U.S. installs a, a, a president or prime minister that then asks for a U.N. peacekeeping mission. But Haiti was not in civil war. There was no civil war in Haiti. And so the fact that they deployed a Chapter 7 deployment was already you know, legally suspect, right, um, in a country that's not at war, but also the fact that they were allowed to use force. And so the minister, you know, there are videos of them shooting into, um, into you know, the neighborhood. One neighborhood in particular was Aristide, um, a Lavala stronghold, where one afternoon they went and basically shot 27,000 bullets against these unarmed, you know, a neighborhood. So you have the brutality of minister, you have the long history of rape, um, um, especially young girls as young as 11, but also young boys. There, there are videos of them raping kids on, uh, you know, all over the internet. But the biggest thing was to have the Institutes for Justice and Democracy in Haiti having to sue the UN um, for all the children that they left behind, um, you know, for it to take over uh, parenting, uh, you know, parental uh, responsibility. In addition to cholera that came to Haiti through the UN forces where they were dumping fecal matter, in the water, in the main water source in the central um, um, district, in the central part of Haiti, which then sickened a, mil a million people and killed anywhere from 10 to 40,000 people. So Minister is seen as nothing but a bunch of rapists and killers and disease bringers to the country. And, and so to the, 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 the disgusting irony of using cholera then as a pretext for another UN invasion is not lost on people. And what is the ulterior motive? What does Amalgro want to happen? Why does he want this intervention? I, it's really interesting. I think Amalgro, the OAS follows the U.S. plan. The U.S. wants complete control of Haiti. And, you know, people always ask me, well, why is Haiti so important? This little poor, you know, they like to use the, the, the stereotype, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Which, But then you have to ask yourself, well, why does the, Haiti have the fourth largest embassy in the world? Why, what's going on there? Why is Haiti so significant? Why is it that there, you know, corporations right on the edge of the country drilling oil without the people knowing? Why is it that people are, their land are being taken from them? You know, my mother was just in Haiti a few weeks ago and she said people are losing, you know, these foreigners coming in and handing them papers and say the land no longer belongs to them. And so there's something happening in Haiti that I think the U.S. wants. And, and people have to know the U.S. has been wanting, there's an island called, island called Mole St. Nicholas, um, the northern part of Haiti near Guantanamo, that the U.S. has been wanting since the 1800s. And they've been trying to get that. In fact, that's why they had to settle from Guantanamo Bay, because the Haitian government refused to allow U.S. access to that. So Haiti becomes the center um, location. And I think as the, you know, the trial and error of U.S. policy. So the Global Fragilities Act supposedly is to, you know, to, to work with regional partners, you know, to, to, to deal with countries that are fragile and violent, right? I, the irony of that, of course, you know, we have to think about Mexico with its gang problem, trying to solve Haiti. <laughs> Haiti's problem is also crazy to me. But there are also the ideas thinking about China, thinking in the long run about China in particular, because they've always wanted Haiti as a staging ground so that they can get to the Indo-Pacific faster. You stage in Haiti, you go through the Panama Canal, and then you end up in the Indo-Pacific. Pacific. So I do think Amagro is just really, they're trying to support Ariel Henry, which is the illegitimate 
government that that's allowing them to do whatever he's the pep puppet and so they'd rather have somebody that they know as opposed to not have as opposed to not have um, a say in who else whoever else will come into play or get elected and so on and so i think amago is just following the orders of the un and 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 the us and i have to also say that i want everybody to know that the un is not a democratic institution i hope we all know this the un the oes there's no way that the UN can be democratic when you have five permanent members that make decisions. And so, and so if we begin with these in, so-called international organizations, no, see them for what they are as imperialist organizations, then we can understand that they all work together um, to, to present European and, and American um, foreign policy. I mean, we know about how much the US cares about Haiti's internal affairs from the fact that it's you know backed two coups in Haiti uh, over the last 30 years. Um, there were those leaks from uh, WikiLeaks from the diplomatic cables, which showed that the U.S. was intervening in Haiti to make sure that they kept the minimum wage right. low. You know, um, that's how much they care about it. And so how much does that background, uh, you know, loom in the in in the eyes of, of Haitians. And, and I noticed, for example, that some Haitians are wearing are, are waving Russian flags in these protests. And I'm wondering why that is like, why are they waving Russian flags? And is that is that because they see Russia as a deterrent or a counterweight to the US? Definitely. I, and I think, you know, unlike the, the people in the US who believe everything they hear in the mainstream media about Ukraine winning, um, um, I think everyone outside of the US understand that the, the what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Russia and the West support of Ukraine has everything to do with um, pushing and maintaining U.S. power and where the U.S. is willing to, you know, throw Europe under the un, under the bus so that it can maintain its uh, um, hegemony, global hegemony. And so people outside of the U.S. understand the reality of what's happening in Europe and they understand Russia's position. But at the same time, they also know that Russia and China are on the Security Council and can um, have influence, have an impact in, in what goes on there. And that's really what's helped people. I think, you know, there were organizations, including my own, that um, where we wrote to Russia and China and asked them to veto the vote on the resolution. And I think, uh, so, so there are Haitian civil society that wrote a long letter to Russia and China, asked them to veto the vote. And, and Haitians see Russia as a counterweight to, um, a lot of these young people see Russia as a counterweight to U.S. imperialism. It's the same way that you see, for example, in Mali, in, in, in African countries, people are waving the Russian flag. And so they see that as, you know, so outside of the U.S., the West, the rest of the world see this as an anti-imperialist fight, you know, whether or not, you know, however that you want to read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Jean-Martin Aristide, who is Haiti's first democratically elected uh, president, and because of that, he was overthrown twice by the U.S., uh, once in the early 90s and then again in 2004. Has he weighed in at all on this current crisis? Is he is he um, speaking out? He's speaking out just slightly, um, not too much. I think, you know, he's very careful. Um, you know, he's, you know, they've killed thousands of Lavalas supporters. Lavalas is no longer as strong as it used to be. Um, it yeah. is completely destroyed um, by the counter, what they would call counter insurgency in Haiti. And so he has spoken out and supported the people. He says that what, what needs to happen is a clear slate, a, a sali public that, 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 that his uh, organization calls a clean slate. And he's saying he basically, not directly, but also said that he, um, 
you know, that this un, un, unelected, um, unpopular government needs to stand by and let the people uh, create um, their own uh, democracy. I have to say the other thing is, I don't know if you know this, like um, back in, um, I think, May or June or something, um, even Helen Alim tried to go meet with Aristide because they knew they needed to find a solution. So apparently she, she had a meeting with Aristide I, and everyone was speculating, trying to see whether or not they might want to use him as a way to pacify the people. And what do you think needs to happen in Haiti? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. Glad we finally got to Haiti. We've been meaning to cover this for a while now, and uh, no one better than than Jamima on this. Yeah, she's really great. I always love talking to her. Such a and, great guest. Yeah, and it's just with all this going on in Ukraine and ever else in the world, the midterms, it's uh, it's hard to stay on top of everything. But this is for Haiti. This is a really dire time. Yeah. And uh, make sure that you become subscribers to our Substack at usefulidiots.substack.com. Also, make sure you rate and review the podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash usefulidiots and like all of our videos. And you're definitely going to want to subscribe because you get access to the great Thursday throwdowns that we do very good video analysis your exclusive dose of midweek media madness right here and the first third time all right everybody we'll see you next time bye bye hello thank you so much for listening to and watching useful idiots for full episodes and extended interviews please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com you can subscribe on youtube at youtube.com usefulidiots for clips live streams and full episodes also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast follow us on twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.